0: You're listening to the Joy of Preparedness podcast for April 5th, 2015. Richard Ruge and Skip Geralds are interviewing Anna Marie Jones, the executive director of Oakland based CARD, C A R D, acronym for Collaborating Agencies Responding to Disasters. Anna Marie Jones uh, works with nonprofits and faith based agencies um, all over the Bay Area and certainly here in Sonoma County also.
1: The Joy of Preparedness Radio is about uh, generating a planetary cultural shift from dependency on others to self sufficiency during emergencies and disasters. And there isn't anyone. Um, that I respect more than Anna-Marie Jones and the CARD organization in creating that shift. So we're going to sp- be spending the two hours today with Anna-Marie, and we're going to start off with talking about the CARD services, and then we'll uh, shift in the second hour to discussing wh- uh, what the difficulties are <laughs> that we've run across in uh, creating a planetary shift. Good morning. <laughs> Good morning. Good morning. <laughs> Happy Easter. Happy,
2: Happy Sarah. Happy
1: rain. Happy
2: everything. Happy spring, Thank you yes. so much for having me.
1: Yeah. Yeah, you're welcome. You're welcome. We're very excited to have you here. Um, on, on our previous uh, programs, BI, uh, Becoming Independent, uh, a program in Sonoma County and Napa County that serves developing disabled people, um, express, the staff there expressed the importance of CARD in preparing Uh, the B.I.'s staff and consumers and how instrumental you were in uh, bringing them from actually fearing (laughs) disaster preparedness (laughs) to making it a joyful experience. Um, So we want to talk a little bit about that today. Uh, B.I. was remarkable during the the, uh, Napa earthquake when... uh, Two hundred people went to the hospitals uh, because they walked on glass. They didn't have shoes under under their beds. Um, Bi had no problems. Uh, Bi was able to discover what um, the what their what their clients were doing in within thirty minutes, and so it was. They were very excited of what your programs offered.
0: Yeah, and I think, um, Anna-Marie, you know, I certainly recall listening to, um, um, you know, all the accolades for how far um, becoming independent had come from this want for being able to be more prepared to actually coming to that place to where, as an organization, they were able to exhibit how much they had evolved in that process by virtue of what had happened with the with the Napa quake. So, I mean, if you can, if you can sort of touch base on that to begin, that, that would be great. But, you know, I also wanted to, I, I made mention about the fact that we're going to be on Facebook and people can comment or question. Can you sort of fill us in on that? You're, you're much more technically oriented than we are.
2: Sure. Um, I've posted on CARD's Facebook page, which is at facebook.com slash card can help. But also, um, Cows Radio has a Facebook page, uh, which you can find right from their um, website. And so we posted there. So if you go to the uh, CARD Facebook page, you can certainly post questions, aha moments, Anything you'd like, and that way I'd be able to um, address it, if not during today's show, then after the show.
0: That's great. That's really helpful. Okay, so, and CARD is just simply C-A-R-D, right?
2: Um, To find us on Facebook, it's facebook.com slash CARD can help, all one word.
1: And what exactly does CARD stand for?
2: That stands for Collaborating Agencies Responding to Disasters.
1: Do you want to talk a little bit about um, your perspective uh, and, and your support for becoming independent and your organization?
2: Sure. Um, well, as you guys know, uh, what CARD does in life is to make all aspects of preparedness, response, recovery, and planning um, easy and culturally appropriate and accessible for agencies whose clients are among the most vulnerable, and so Becoming Independent um, had contacted us uh, several years ago, and Becoming Independent has hundreds of clients, all of whom are developmentally disabled, and Becoming Independent, their mission is to help their clients, their consumers, to stay independent and in their homes and in the community. So when they took on preparedness, as uh, Jean and Carmen shared in the uh, last show when they were on, it was really quite a challenge for them. Um, Just trying to weave preparedness response and having a disaster plan and all of that into their already full lives was quite a challenge. And preparedness has not been marketed as a um, positive, life-affirming conversation, so, as they said, when they, they connected with us, we really worked on turning that around for them. And what they did was nothing short of uh, miraculous. So they really took on the message of they are not preparing for disasters, they are preparing to prosper. That is a an ongoing theme and a motto um, that we have. And so what that looked like for Becoming Independent was creating a plan such that preparedness and response capacity was built into the organizational culture. That meant that staff took on preparedness personally for them because the agency obviously cannot function without staff members, volunteers being ready and able to respond. They also put preparedness into the lives of their clients and consumers, and that meant that their desire Um, developmentally disabled um, folks had personal preparedness and preparedness in their homes. So when the Napa quake struck back in August, it was three-something in the morning. In the first half hour, the staff members all had secured their own families, and then all of the 200-plus clients and consumers, well, they either had a phone call or an actual visit from a BI staffer, and only one of their clients had to be evacuated um, from her home because there was too much structural damage. But what that turned into was a level of just joyous empowerment where the staffers were very pleased that they were able to respond first and foremost appropriately for their own families. So their own families were secured, and then they were in action. They had divvied up the responsibilities. They knew exactly how it was going to play out, and their clients and consumers were confident. They had already been brought into this conversation. They knew that becoming independent was going to be checking in on them and helping them. And so the staff, they did things like um, helped clients clean up the glass and broken things and make sure they were safe. And when they shared some of their success stories, it's just some of the most charming, gushing success of clients who in the rest of the world, they would be looked at as incredibly vulnerable people. Their clients and consumers were strong and confident and able to tell their family members how they were prepared and what they should do. And it was the clients and consumers, because they were confident, because they were prepared, they were able to keep their families calm. So just it was levels of success story upon levels of success story. I mean, this was a success For BI as uh, staffers, as an organization, for their clients and consumers, the families of all the clients and consumers, the neighbors, the emergency responders who weren't called. I mean, there were just so many successes in that one piece that I'd have to say for my office, it was one of the most sort of charming, beautiful success stories um, related to a, a recent quake.
1: Yes, for us too.
0: <laughs> yeah, it was really great to hear them. I mean, some of the stories, like you're talking about, I mean, the the individual stories that they had were were you know really heartwarming, really heartwarming stories. The one um, fellow, I believe, that you know, literally gave his family instructions on everything that needed to happen, just step by step. Yeah,
1: mm-hmm. yeah He he was an individual that tended to be stressful in life, but he was mm-hmm. very confident during the earthquake. Right. So, what is? Uh, what do you do in CART? What, what are your programs?
2: <laughs> oh, there are many. Um, but part of uh, making preparedness uh, fast, fun, easy, and accessible means breaking it into component pieces. So our different programs reflect what it is that community agencies need to embrace preparedness. So we have classes and workshops and facilitations And tools. So, an agency, whether it's a food bank or a faith agency, a daycare, or an agency like Becoming Independent, they would call us. And services can be as simple as um, an online consultation, where by phone or over the internet, we walk them through really what's going on in their agency because every agency is so very different some agencies have zero preparedness and actually no one who is helping them to embrace it so they don't have any executive buy-in to make it happen so we would be literally walking through the what are the easiest things you can do whether or not you have money whether or not you have leadership that is uh supportive we have classes and trainings on things like the incident command system so how do you respond who has what role we would have facilitations on how, how, is, how is it that you actually get everyone bought in and aligned in creating a disaster plan or um, a continuity of operations plan. We have all kinds of fun, easy things, like the types of networking exercises you might want to do in staff meetings, um, tools. We spent a lot of time creating tools so that absolutely anyone would be able to respond appropriately or plan more effectively or prepare with greater ease and grace. So it's everything from tiny little rip sheets rather than um, taking an 8.5 by 11 piece of paper and making um, a trifold about some particular topic we take a strip of paper, that's a third of a piece of paper, and put key information. So, for example, one of our most popular RIP sheets is um, about programming your cell phone. So I'm my office is based in the city of Oakland, so our Oakland RIP sheet on one side has all the top emergency numbers that you would ever want to program into your phone. So a zealous person could literally sit there with this list and program it into their phone. Mm -hmm. Someone who's somewhat less zealous might take that list and put it on their refrigerator or their bulletin board. Another person might take that same little list and fold it up and put it in their wallet. So whether you're high-tech or low-tech or no-tech, you can make that tool work for you. And it's way less negative impact on the planet because we're talking a third of a piece of paper, and because it's so small, people are totally willing to put it in their wallet.
0: That's great. So one of the things that I noticed in looking at your website, uh, which is um, cardcanhelp.org, are nudge
2: notices.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I'm just sort of picking, it's a wonderful site, I'm just sort of picking some things under the tools and resources area, but can you mention that? I mean, I think these little ideas that you have, you have so many, and these little ideas for people to be able to bring this information in, in either a funny or at least a comfortable way, is, Mm. is really incredible.
2: Thank you. Um, We do have several tools, one of them being the nudge notice. And actually a nudge notice is a tip of the hat to the book called Nudge, which is about how you can basically nudge the public into better uh, health-related habits. So nudge notices are about how you can, in a waiting room, for example, whether it's a clinic or wherever people are congregating. You would just have plain, simple signs telling people some of the better behaviors so that people can help each other to stay healthy, safe, and well. So a nudge notice would be a sign saying, cover your cough or shield your sneeze, um, that sort of things, because the reality is, is many people still sneeze incorrectly. When I was a child, you were taught to cover your mouth with your hands. So many people still, when they sneeze, they just put their hands up to their face and sneeze in their hands. This is a terrible, terrible, terrible thing to do because now you are sneezing germs into your hands and of course your hands touch doorknobs and armrests and all of that. The proper way to sneeze is to sneeze into your elbow you don't generally speaking use your elbow to open doors and touch things so putting that nudge notice up there is a way of one just reminding people but two it allows you as a person sharing that space to give the little nudge if you see someone sneezing in an improper in an improper fashion you could literally just sort of Poke your elbow out and nudge them okay. and point to the sign. So it's a, a way of socializing good health behaviors.
1: Is the nudge nerd notice um, another uh, name for potty posters?
2: <laughs> no, potty posters are actually somewhat different. Um, potty posters, they refer to the fact that almost no one really wants to read your brochures and pamphlets, but everyone, everyone will read um, something that's hanging in a restroom stall. And potty posters have a really specific recipe for what makes a really great potty poster. And a great potty poster has a big, colorful graphic and very few words. So, for example, one of our most popular potty posters um, shows you how to turn off your gas. And it's got a big picture of a gas meter with how and when it should be turned off. So most of the potty poster, which is just an 8.5 by 11 piece of paper, is a big colorful image and then a couple of either aha points or instructions. We have another potty poster on programming your phone to make your phone an absolutely extraordinary preparedness tool. We have another potty poster that's all about color coding your safety. The truth is Everyone knows the basic color scheme that goes along with stoplights in in the street, right? We all know that green is safe, yellow is caution, and uh, red is danger. Stop. Well, we could color code our safety in every facility, and it would make it just easier for everyone to know. Hmm, this is where I should go um, to stay safe. This area, I should be caution. And oh, this is dangerous. I mean, if you color-coded, you would be able to have two-year-olds know where to crawl. Some daycare centers have taken on putting a little green rug under the tables where you want kids to drop, cover, and hold on after an earthquake. Because a little kid, a kid as little as two, they would know their colors. So a two-year-old can be taught, when the shaking starts, crawl to the little green circle. Right, um, and color so, coding makes it easy on the brain. Oh,
0: great. So, Ann, so these are part of the services that that card would provide to an an, an agency, correct? So, when you're talking about like these, um, you might you might actually provide these to an organization. Is that true?
2: We provide many things. Yes. So, one people can download now, but we also custom create and custom tailor. Um, all of our different tools so that it is much more reflective of the of the actual agency. So, for example, our potty poster that speaks about programming um, your cell phone, we could absolutely customize it such that it has very specific things that you would want the people at that particular daycare or that particular faith agency to know.
1: Great, great yeah th- yes um, we don 't want to give the impression that what you have to offer is not available on the website there's so many things on the website <laughs> yeah yeah that you, you don't have to actually talk to a card individual to <laughs> take advantage
0: right. but some of it is so great that you would you know you would personalize it as you're saying either to the facility i mean some of it's generic and it's going to apply to you know you know multiple agencies multiple buildings multiple groups of people but at the same time you can also personalize it
2: absolutely and much of what is there is ready for downloading so uh, a zealous person could right now go on the website download potty posters and safety signage and nudge notices and take a take a roll of tape and transform their their office right now mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. you mentioned a thing called incident command can you? What's so important about Incident Command, and what is it?
2: Uh, the Incident Command System. I wildly love the Incident Command System. <laughs> the Incident Command System is something that has been alive and well in emergency services for decades. It's the system that originally firefighters um, were the main group to use it, but it's basically... Who does what? What roles in response? You know, someone has to be in charge. Someone has to be um, responsible for getting all the stuff you need. Someone has to be responsible for all things related to getting the message out to the public. I mean, they're just a very defined, small group of responsibilities, and that is what the entire United States uses. The United States and all of its territories, um, we operate inside this system and um, well the big system the national system is called the national incident management system but a component piece of that is this roles and responsibilities which is the incident command system so normally the incident command system is as you might guess a large uh, can look rather bureaucratic lots of acronyms it comes in a really impressively large binder and that was really a a stopper for agencies. I mean, most agencies, particularly the agencies that CARD would deal with, uh, nonprofits and faith agencies and service providers, they have no desire to go and learn the government system with the idea that sometime in the next 30 years there may be a crisis. So what we did was we rewrote the incident command system and retooled it and really stripped away the acronyms, the bureaucracy, the the extra pieces and extracted, what are the things that everyone can use to organize any project better? So rather than teaching the incident command system as this is the government system for responding to emergencies, we turned it into a project management system. So any time you need to manage a project as a group, And it doesn't matter what the project is. It could be a disaster, but it could also be a fundraiser. It could be a staff meeting. It could be anything where you need to mobilize people into a team. We've rewritten the incident command system for that. We kept the major uh, titles. So, for example, if you're the one who's running the bake sale, you're in charge at the bake sale, you're still going to be called the incident commander, but you learn the system do things that you already do so it's very much about the normalizing and socializing this concept so that every person can use it and And ultimately in the crisis it'll be incredibly helpful for people to have a shared frame of reference for how we're going to work together
1: right yeah they know what they're going to what the responsibilities are and and, that's
0: part uh, of what happened for BI with with the situation in Napa was a reliance on that structure, if I recall correctly.
1: Do you have any other examples of people that use your incident command system?
2: Oh, we have um, many, but um, up in your area, um, up up north of us, we also had a fabulous success story many years ago with the volunteer center of of NAPA Um, back then. They had a wonderful executive director. Her name was Carol Hallberg, and she is a longtime believer in uh, empowered preparedness. And she is a big supporter of ours. So when she was the executive director of the Volunteer Center there, she had our incident command system, which comes in a, you know, a Red Wonder file, which is really just pockets and pouches, so that when a disaster happens. You're not grabbing a binder. You're opening up this kit, and everything is visually very easy on the brain as to f- how do you figure everything out. And the volunteer center back when they had um, the big floods, you remember years ago in Napa, Napa mm-hmm. flooded, yes, and um, the volunteer center was ready. They whipped out their incident command system, deployed their volunteers. They did all kinds of Outreach with the volunteers, those volunteers were shoveling mud and spraying down the streets, which prompted such an incredible response from the business community because they were afraid they were going to miss the major holiday shopping time, and they didn't. The volunteers did such a good job that, one, the businesses barely had any downtime, but the emergency manager had to call and say, "Um, is there any place where your volunteers haven't been? Because when FEMA gets here, we want to show the level of damage that actually was here. And the charming, charming story that came out of that was uh, one of the women at the volunteer center had a 10-year-old son named Nolan. And three days into the event, Nolan came to work with his mother and became the logistics officer at the volunteer center. And to us, um, it's the great story because when when we stand in front of audiences and we say that our version of the incident command system is so easy that a 10-year-old can do it, I literally can point to a (laughs) 10-year-old. That's who responded great. to a yeah. major disaster?
1: Yeah, that's the brilliance of your your work. I think is the common sense uh, quality to everything, and 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 the humor in it too. <laughs> right.
0: right, and that you would use the ten year old, which I totally get that you would that you would use that person.
1: Yeah. Uh, do you have any other preparedness tools that you want to share before we move on to?
2: We have you know, um, a few that I think are really important for people to to understand how powerful they are. Um, It's the simplicity piece that I think really uh, will matter to some people. For example, we don't hand out brochures and pamphlets mainly because they don't really get that level of uh, response. Um, No one has called us in 25 years to say, wow, that brochure changed my life. But we give out whistles. We are very big pushers of whistles. We believe whistles and flashlights are the tools of heroes. We would like to see everyone carrying small whistle, small um, keychain flashlight, and really be ready to step up. So we have so many success stories with whistles that it would be hard for me to think of any tool that has been as helpful to the public in as many ways. So, for example, um, we had a young woman who was our, uh, she worked, not at our office. She was on call for us, but she worked at a different nonprofit, and uh, her name is Teresa. And Teresa is uh, a petite person, probably five one, maybe. And uh, she was escorting a client to the door. And because she was an on call worker for us, we have a minimum standard of preparedness. We tell everyone, if you work for us or you volunteer for us, you have to maintain. At least the lowest level of preparedness, which includes having a whistle and flashlight, an incident command wallet card, and a programmed cell phone, so Teresa had her whistle on her keychain. she had to escort a client to the door who had been denied services so she's and Teresa is a lovely, lovely, gracious person. She was escorting this gentleman to the door, who was a large, tall, beefy guy and He was really angry that he was being denied services, and Teresa escorted him out the door and was apologizing and giving him his referral, and he was really angry. And he came toward her, which startled her and made her feel um, afraid. So she backed away from him and started to blow her whistle. And there is a code and the code is one one blow is yes, two blows is no, and three blows equals help. so Teresa puts the whistle in her mouth and starts blowing help, and it did a couple of things. number one, it scared the guy, so he jumped back away from her and said, "Oh, what are you doing?" and you know moved away so that was a win. She put distance uh, between them, but by blowing the distress call, she alerted everyone inside. Her agency. So, of course, everyone flooded out and the situation neutralized. Um, So we look at it as here's this, you know, 65-cent tiny little whistle that made all the difference, right? It it gave her something she could tangibly do, and it worked. Um, We've had success stories that didn't look like that, but looked like, wow, this is a cool use. We had a woman Um, She came and she listened to us present about the whistles. And then the next time she saw us, we were in a church presenting. And she, from the back of the room, raised her hand and said, Anna Marie, I want to testify. And she comes up (laughs) to the front of the room and she wowed the crowd. She said that the last time she had attended a card presentation, she heard the good word of the whistle and she went out and got whistles and flashlights for all the seniors who were participating in her senior walking program. She was running a program where the goal of the program was to get seniors moving up and out of their house, and even if it's just walking down the block, but to put more activity in their lives. She gave them the whistle and flashlight, taught them the safety code. You know, one is yes, two is no, three is help. She showed them how, as you're going to cross the street, you can flash your light, you can blow your whistle, and cars will indeed stop. She, The end of her story, the highlight for the whole audience, was that she gave the whistles and flashlights and the training, and she more than tripled attendance in her walking program. Wow. It turns out that the seniors were incredibly intimidated by crossing streets, by doing anything where they perceived that their slowness was going to actually put them in danger. But once they saw that people could see them by virtue of the whistle and hear them, I mean by virtue of the flashlight and hear them because of the whistle, they realized that, yes, traffic would indeed stop. They would be able to cross safely.
0: That's great. That's great.
2: So I, I think of stories like that, and I, I like the idea of whistles, also being used for people where you wouldn't perceive a vulnerability. One of the guys who took our training was a young, fit, strong guy who was a runner, and he put the whistle on his keychain because, you know, he had taken our train the trainer class. And then one day he was out running, and he tripped, and he tumbled down a ravine. He was in the Marin Headlands, and he tumbled down a ravine and was so badly injured that he couldn't get up. But he was able to turn his body over and work his keys up to his mouth. And it was the whistle that allowed people to hear him, and that's how he was rescued.
0: Wow. That's another great story.
2: I mean, honestly, there are so many whistle success stories. And I honestly believe that if we were to reach out to businesses and get even a a small percentage of businesses to dedicate – even 10% of their swag budget to things like whistles. We could change the level of safety in any community. Businesses spend millions of dollars putting their name and logo on, you know, foam fingers and caps and mouse pads and things that you're never going to use. But whistles are tiny. They have this incredibly long life. You know, the whistle I bought 30 years ago is still a good whistle today and i believe we will have some sort of emergency and the day that someone saves themselves or others with that company's whistle is the day that company gets free branding for life i mean i mean imagine when your whistle saves the life of you know some frail person or some child isn't abducted because that kid had a whistle and knew to blow it
0: Right, right I think that's one of the, the, the startle aspect Of the whistle Like you were saying About the fellow That sort of backed away From the girl That uh, you know First did it you The know, woman first, first, The woman Yeah <laughs> that, blew the, that blew it yeah. I mean I think That in itself Is is well One of the reasons Why I gave One to my daughter um, You know Was just that sense I mean just the whole Startle thing It, it would move somebody away But then it is also So shrill that, mm-hmm. that it alerts You know Everybody around That something Something is going on And that that yep. in itself is worth so much.
2: I totally agree.
1: So couch potato pre- preparedness, I don't know about that, but I've heard you use that phrase.
2: You don't know about couch potatoes? <laughs> yes,
1: Well, I, yes, I am one. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, we believe that um, TV and movies so greatly influence um, just everything we know in society that we incorporated this concept of couch potato preparedness, how you can become a more prepared, more ready, more more resilient person just by how you choose to watch um, media. So whether you're watching TVs, movies, videos, whatever, there are preparedness lessons, and we actually facilitate this particularly when we do uh, large groups. So we ask people about, okay, what's a movie that most of us have seen or what's a TV show that many of us in the room have seen? And so they'll pick whatever movie, and then we start looking for, okay, what are the preparedness lessons that you get from that particular uh, watching experience? So, for example, a very popular one, is The Sound of Music, because so many people know that movie. And if you were to just think for a few moments, what are some of the sort of preparedness and resourcefulness lessons you can learn just from The Sound of Music? Take a couple of seconds and think about it.
0: Oh, boy, you're really going to make us lose our memories here, huh?
1: Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely.
0: So Sound of Music, Richard? I, I
1: ne- I, I've never saw, uh, seen the Sound of Music. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah.
0: I don't know. I just keep going back to the Ch- Julie Andrews roaming through the field. That's the only thing that comes to mind for me. <laughs> Singing, of course.
2: So if of you,
1: course. If you saw the Sound of Music, what? I, and I haven't. So I can.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, uh, let me help you out. Number one. <laughs> Uh, many people if you if they remember the sound of music, they will remember that captain von Trapp um, he had a whistle and he used the whistle to actually create a code for each one of his kids, so he could blow the whistle, and everyone knew um, which you know kid was being called by the whistle so one whistles are an incredible, incredible tool. Um, another simple lesson from the sound of music is that. When the family is escaping from um, the Nazi occupation, they turn to a faith agency. Mm-hmm. You know, Julie Andrews had played a nun. And when they were in trouble, they sought refuge at the convent. So just reminding people that oftentimes your local religious organizations can be a great source of, of comfort and um, support. When they were looking for clothing to wear, she looks up and looks at her curtains and realizes the old curtains that were going to be replaced can be turned into play clothes for the kids. You know, it's about ingenuity as opposed to believing you're going to have a kit with you at all times. That ability to look up and see something as being able to serve your needs is an incredible preparedness tool. Mm -hmm. So... Couch potato preparedness is really about taking your viewing time and your kickback time and helping you to build that capacity in your head because the truth is the more your brain is trained to see opportunity, to see resource, to see a path forward, the easier it will be for you to follow that path. One of the things we tell people in couch potato preparedness sessions is when you're watching TV, particularly news, and it's covering those horrible disasters that we we see so often, don't simply watch it as a passive viewer. That's actually really detrimental to your health and well-being to just see horrific scenes of tragedy. But if you're going to look, look with solution eyes. Look to see what solutions you see. See if someone is doing something innovative. Look for what could be done. So whenever I watch news coverage, I am not sitting there passively passively absorbing the horrible and the terrible and the shocking and the gruesome. I am entirely looking for what's in that shot, what am I hearing that looks like a solution, what looks like something that if I had done it or thought it um, in that moment, it would have made the difference for me. Um, and mm-hmm. so you're really using your TV time as brain training time. So you can watch it, enjoy it, not have the negatives stick to you, but literally leave that experience with that sense of wow! I am clearer now. I am sharper. I am more focused. I have actually added a toolkit to my my brain.
0: It's such a different. Perspective, one on watching movies or TV, um, but also just you know trying to or not trying, but just allowing those things that are actually sort of evident to us anyway sort of come in. And, and roam around inside instead of just ignoring the fact that okay she made clothes out of the drapes you know it's a, it's a very interesting you know idea you just sort of notice it because oh well they're in that situation but what I like about it and the way that you talk about it Anna Maria is that it's just you're just bringing it into yourself you're just bringing it in that hey this is just how I think this is just I, this is these are the things that I look and see this is the way that I do it so that instead of I think as you were saying before preparing for a disaster you're actually preparing to prosper i really i really like the way you've you've flipped that around
2: thank you i think if we teach more people that we're preparing for something positive we are preparing for something that is inside their grasp we will have many more people willing to engage in this conversation personally when and I, you know i have chosen this as my career i mean i am a believer in readiness but when some emergency services person points out the horrible and the terrible and the catastrophic, it doesn't empower me. It doesn't make me feel like, oh, yes, I can be part of this. But if you train your brain for the solution, even if it's just a small solution, it's a solution. Mm-hmm. So preparing to prosper, prepare for health, prepare for something positive that we want to move toward and fill your brain with that, I just find it to be a, a more uplifting path.
1: Mm-hmm. You brought up the uh, issue of uh, your religion um, or the uh, church. It Disaster preparedness, for me, is a way of creating, uh, inspiring you to be leaders in your communities and in, in your social networks. So you want, would you like to talk a little bit about the role of religion in preparedness?
2: Yeah, we, um, we work with many different faith agencies, and what we have found is that religion plays an incredible role in the willingness of people to embrace preparedness or response. Many world faiths have it as, after a disaster, helping people who are suffering is absolutely part of what they do. You know, serving the suffering is something that so many faiths have embraced. But if you look at the disaster conversation, you will see wide-ranging opinions on what disasters actually mean. If you believe that disaster, like an earthquake, for example, if you believe that earthquakes, fires, and floods are how um, gods punish the wicked, what is your motivation for preparedness and helping people to avoid their due punishment? So by framing preparedness around earthquakes, floods, fires— if you're speaking to a group where they believe that those things are your punishment, preparedness has a kind of dicey feel to it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and there are you, – <laughs> you can turn on your television and see many of the televised ministries that as soon as there's a big earthquake, fire, flood, they are quick to say that it was punishment for some belief or some practice that they were engaged in. So we have merged – these concepts, such that it becomes kind of dicey. Um, I um, used to lead classes at uh, UC Berkeley. I was a guest lecturer for many years, and one year we had uh, two students who were from Iran, and they gave their final class presentation on the impact of their on their of their faith on uh, preparedness. So they spoke about. The BAM earthquake, where I don't know, I think it was 70% of the ancient city of BAM was destroyed, 50% of the populace was killed, and they spoke about how, in their, and something in the order of 98% of Iran is Muslim. And so these two young men were raised there, and that is their faith, and they, you really, you could have heard a pin drop in the room because they were speaking about from their teachings the faithful are protected by god Mm -hmm. the faithful are protected and if that is your belief and you're saying the faithful are protected why would you need to do these things of preparedness right what would it say about you if you actually believed that that's the way it was going to play out and so they said and they had quite a lot of information about it there was so little preparedness in the culture. And then, of course, they hadn't had an earthquake in something like 2,000 years. So there was really, really no thought about preparedness from a different lens. What they went on to say was there are other things that actually stopped the entire country from embracing levels of readiness. Um, and they were, you know, very clear. And what we really came to was, well, also, why would anyone right now listen to the American government when the if the American government says, oh, you should prepare for earthquake, fire, or flood? What person who, one, isn't experiencing earthquakes, hasn't experienced it in 2,000 years? And by the way, this would be an American message. Why would you believe that? that would be the right path to follow. So the truth is, if you look at the five pillars of Islam, four out of the five of them directly have a planning component to it. You know, if you're going to do your pilgrimage to Mecca, that is an enormous planning experience. If you're going to fast for a month, that has an enormous level of planning that you have to do for it. So the reality is, if you're going to frame the conversation such that that community can hear it, you wouldn't be framing it around the horrible and the terrible things that can be perceived as um, an act. And two, you would be framing it around the things that are part of the community, that they are facile with, right? It's just anytime you talk to a family, if they have practiced fasting for a month, they 've got a level of planning down and to leverage that as the cultural norm um, but I could say the same thing about reaching out to the Mormon community we have a very close relationship with the Mormon Church out here in in Oakland and so we you know and I've got close friends who are Mormon in that faith you have if you're in good standing you have a year's worth of food stockpiled, a year's worth. Plus, you have your 30-day immediate provisions and you have a three-day go kit. Plus, you would tithe back to the church. And with that tithing, the church actually builds food distributions and warehouses and everybody knows how to stockpile the food and grains and all these sorts of things. So if, if that is your faith and you have done those things, how would you hear the message of, you should prepare for seven days.
0: Right. <laughs> yeah, you would take it a little differently.
2: <laughs> yeah, why would you even listen? If someone is coming to you and you've got a hundred days, I mean a year's worth of food, and everyone you know has a year's worth of food, and you tithe and you know that your church has food distribution and warehouses and all of this, if you've got all of that, why would you even listen to someone who says you should have seven days? You wouldn't even make it to the end of the sentence, because in your own head, you'd be like, been there, done that, already know this. Mm -hmm. So speaking to the general public as if they are going to leave their religion to the side is really rather disrespectful of how much value people put in their religious teachings. Mm -hmm. So we try, whenever possible, to custom tailor the message so that inqu- that requires doing some research so there was just one of the churches we were working with um, we were looking up just some of their tenants and some of their beliefs da, 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 and, and so we hit upon the word prepare and in their literature and in their liturgy prepare had nothing to do with Disasters, you know, every time prepare, most of the time prepare came up, it was about preparing to experience the wonderfulness of God. You know, it was the preparation for the greatness that was about to, to come. So it was a beautiful word. When we shared with that church all of those pieces, it was really easy for them to embrace prepare. Because prepare had a positive, wonderful meaning. And that's, that, I think, is a better, stronger path for religious organizations is to actually look and see, oh, this is what these concepts mean to us. These are the areas where we already believe in this preparedness piece. And frankly, every faith agency we have ever worked with, they do things as a group. It doesn't matter what it is. It could be, you know, some big revival meeting. It could be some big conference. It could be their ministry to the poor. It doesn't matter what it is. They already do things as a group. So, one, you can certainly weave in the incident command system, but you can weave in all kinds of preparedness practices, you know, everybody being programmed in each other's phones and everybody being able to mobilize their assets, if you do it framed around their faith and framed around what they already believe, it's a much easier conversation, and then you're not pressing against the things that push people away from preparedness.
0: I think that's such an important, you know, point um, for preparedness in general. Um, the the CERT program and the kind of work, at least that I've been involved with, I mean, at, at the community level, you're you're looking for pockets of people that have something in common and yep. obviously religion is, is is something you know you know that, that different groups have in common and and I think that gives them that springboard that platform to be able to then bring people together um, for these ideas like preparedness or say like the cert program or us in Sebastopol for the map your neighborhood program some reason for them to come together initially and then as you're saying you weave in these other people to the reasons that they're already coming together.
2: I believe if we do that, we change how preparedness lives in the community and how it is shared. You know, I, I, can, uh, e- I can easily find um, faith communities where they already do so many community things together. If preparedness is just woven into that, it becomes part of the strength of that community. And then you don't have to sell people on the idea of it, they've already been sold on the idea that they are a community that they have a shared belief.
0: Mm-hmm. I really think that the the size of the group, and I have no idea what the you know what what's critical as far as the numbers high or low, but but the size of the group really matters a lot. Also, at least in my experience, and again, sort of like thinking about it at the community, the community of Sebastopol in particular, at the community level, um, too big. And there's not enough voices to sway the consciousness. Too small, and there's, there's just not really enough people, you know, really, in some instances, to make it worthwhile. But there is a size that you can actually have a really big impact in. Um, and, and it obviously changes, but I think there is something to do with the size of the group.
2: I, I agree, But I would say that there are some things that work no matter the size. Mm -hmm. So, for example, that level of individual preparedness, Mm -hmm. if you're a group of three, it matters. But if you're a group of a 1,000, it matters. Um, It's part of the reason why we set our minimum at cards. So very minimum, if the lowest level, newest, greenest person needs to have whistle and flashlight, emergency response card in their wallet, and a, programmed cell phone. We're not saying go out and buy one. If you don't carry a cell phone, then you can still carry phone numbers in your wallet. But almost everyone we ever deal with, they do have a cell phone. So we just require the programming. And Mm -hmm. I would just like you to consider what it would mean if every faith agency serving Sebastopol, if every business serving the the Sebastopol area embraced that much. I'm not talking about You know, going online and doing all the ICS trainings, I'm not talking about CERT. I am talking about if all we did was get everyone to walk the world with that lowest level of, basically, it's an alerting and warning system, the whistle and flashlight. Mm -hmm. Everybody has the incident command card in their wallet so that if anything happens, they can immediately mobilize people into a team and each other's phone numbers programmed in their phone. I'm not talking about every business trying to program everyone, but if every church, for example, programmed at least the major members of the, um, basically the executive board and the, the lay leaders, right, so whoever the top, I don't know, 15, 20, however many people, right there, that's a level of ability to mobilize your community very quickly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and if and everyone did that, that would change everything. Yeah.
1: So do you have a list that you should put on your phone on your website and also the incident command system? On your yes.
2: We we have several things. And actually, um, we will be posting on Facebook specifically for this radio show. When, when you guys put the link up um, of the recording of this show, we will post it, and then in the comments put link, link, link to all sorts of resources so a person can basically take this as a primer for getting ready.
1: Okay, perfect. Great.
0: So, you know, it comes to mind for me, Anna-Marie, that that faith-based and then the nonprofits, this this seems to be, I'm sure that there are other groups that you work with too, but can you talk to us about, like, the groups that you specifically work with? It seems like it's the non-commercial sector.
2: Yes, and that's because our mission was really about serving those agencies who are the safety net for the most vulnerable people in our community. So if you look at it from that perspective, it's about trying to eliminate doing random acts of preparedness and senseless acts of planning. Reaching out to 500 individuals is actually rather challenging. You can't follow up on 500 individuals. You can't force 500 individuals to do anything. But if you were to put that same level of energy to 500 agencies serving vulnerable people, one, you can have that agency buy into this concept in the same way that becoming independent bought in by having them buy in, by putting our time and energy toward helping them embrace this topic. Hundreds of becoming independent clients and consumers were supported. If I had done just generic outreach to those 500 consumers, I wouldn't have had, you know, 1 100th one of the of the traction. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it is really about anchoring this conversation into service providers so that it can live on. Mm-hmm. Um, the types of agencies range from food banks. We've worked with several different food banks. We have a large food bank in Alameda County And if you think about um, how many food banks operate, um, ours, for example, is actually a feeder hub for 270 partners, you know, pantries and food kitchens and distribution sites. So if our one agency called the Alameda County Community Food Bank goes down, that's 270 other feeder programs that don't have their major source of food. Mm -hmm. So... The level of importance for that agency, I think, is really obvious. So we tend to do that. The same would be true for a daycare agency. You know, it's, it's easy to look at a single daycare agency and not see it as important until you realize how many parents are affected if that one daycare center isn't open and how many businesses will be affected by parents not being able to show up for work. Mhm mm-hmm. The same is true for the in home health care type agencies right one in in home care agency might have a couple hundred clients, and those clients and consumers without that agency that means nobody is coming to bring people food or to do their personal care and toileting and all of those things. so mm-hmm. we focused very specifically on. Service providers, and particularly service providers whose clients will be that much more vulnerable because of the failure of that agency.
0: And do you think that the that the agencies themselves, um, these the, the caring agencies, that they're more receptive or open to um, taking taking on the idea of preparedness to prosper, prepared to prosper?
2: Um, they. They are usually resistant to the preparedness conversation because, you know, 99% of the world hears the preparedness conversation, the traditional way, that preparedness is the thing you do because worse will happen. You know, it's expensive, it's time-consuming, and you have to do it with the idea that sometime in the next 30 years, something terrible may happen, and hopefully if you've done all this preparedness stuff, then boom, maybe this will have come in handy. Um, And that's just a terrible framing, it is all. Really, really counterproductive, and it goes against everything we know about how people um, actually want to embrace anything. So, service providers, when they hear the prepare to prosper part, when they hear the prepare for health, when they hear, oh, this is going to make it possible for me to mobilize my assets for something I want to do, yes, then they're totally willing to embrace it. It makes it so much easier. For some, it's still a challenge. Just putting any time into anything that isn't bringing in money and fulfilling on their initial mission, it's a challenge. But I can tell you that their willingness to embrace it is remarkable once they see the easy socialized piece. And for some, they hear it and they can immediately do things. They can immediately go on to our website and download tools and resources so even if they don't have a meeting even if they don't have buy-in yet they can immediately start taking positive action Mm
0: -hmm. well i think it's this is something that we want to dig a little bit deeper in this in the in the next hour
1: so we want to get into why it's so hard to get preparedness to change a change from uh fear to prosper. And I came up, and you know that I've been interested in this topic for for years, because what I've discovered is um, that when I talk with uh, some of the most intelligent people, they tend to resist it. So I've come up with a phrase called the lily Lily defense. We have a uh, two sheep in, in our yard, and one is lily. And I feed that Dang little <laughs> sheep! Every day for years, and she's still really nervous. And when I get around, when I come around, she uh, runs away. And and I find that's true with uh, some very intelligent people, uh, directors of uh, state agencies and, and nonprofits and stuff. That they don't really address. i I've, I've as I thought about it. I have never had a dialogue with anyone about disaster preparedness. I say I'm interested in it, and they don't speak back. The, their defense is they run away like Lily does, um, and I don't know if you, if you'd like to talk at all about that. That you can't really get people to to be in a dialogue. Did something happen? Yeah. Okay, uh, so.
2: Yeah, we've we've found that to be true. Um, I, I've been a preparedness person um, since I was a child, and so I have a very different framework for this. I didn't get into preparedness because of earthquakes, floods, and fires. I got into it because when my little sister was born, my parents told me that my job was to help keep her safe. So my relationship to preparedness is as an act of love. My relationship, my personal relationship is that it's an incredibly positive thing because it got me lots of positive attention from adults. It got me a lot of trust from teachers. It got me raises later because my boss said, well, you know, bad things tend not to happen when you're around and that's good enough for me. So I I look at it from a shamelessly positive place but 99% of the world, that's just not their relationship to it. So you've got people in charge of these major disaster-related functions and agencies, and they don't have an empowered, um, positive relationship to preparedness. It's um, something they do fear. Um, there's the fear of loss, and there's a death, and there's a lot of resistance to the conversation. But the resistance to change is a, sort of a different, nuanced piece. I have found that they are unwilling to make the shift, um, not because they believe what is is happening is effective. Many, many people in state agencies, regional, local, they absolutely know that their preparedness has not caught on. They know that they've been handing out binders and brochures and pamphlets without it making a difference. They've seen the surveys that show, after millions of dollars spent, how little – actually um, resonated with the public. There's a resistance to change on those issues for, I've found, multiple different reasons. I've seen people be unwilling to hear this, and they, they really wanted to shut me down in what I was speaking about, because change means giving up certain things. It means saying to the public or to, you know, God and country, Yeah, what we've been doing really hasn't worked. I have seen a resistance in funders to actually acknowledge that what they have been funding has not worked. Um, You know, change is hard under the best of circumstances. Change can be um, a challenge. But I would mostly argue that most people have no relationship to preparedness as An act of love, preparedness as something that gives you a completely different skill set, right? When Mm -hmm. at CARD, we talk about preparedness and response, and it is framed around multiple positive things. It can be love, it can be asset management, it could be effectiveness. You know, turning your team into an effective team is a wonderful goal without there being something horrible at the end of it. When you speak to the folks from becoming independent, they now have a way of addressing virtually anything that comes up, right? If they have to reach out to their clients for any reason, it could be something shamelessly positive, they know how to do it because they've got their call down list. They know how to get the message out. Um, it's a skill set. You know, asset mobilization is a skill set. Showing that you care is a wonderful thing being able to um, see resource with absolutely anything. You know, one of our most popular classes is, in fact, almost nothing to do with the disaster concept at all, but it is about um, you being able to look at any item and seeing it for more than the sum of its parts. It's called Skip Kit, Safety Kept in Place. And when we're teaching it, you're being given... Items. It could be a zip-top bag. It could be a packet of tissues. It doesn't matter what it is But by the time you're done with the class You could generate 50 different ways that a zip-top bag is the most awesome thing in the world for preparedness response recovery That skill set is great Even if you never have a disaster So the vast majority of people have never seen preparedness In the positive light, they've never seen it as giving them skills that they don't have now. They've never seen it separated from the horrible and the terrible and the overwhelming and the traumatic that disasters and and that can be. So I think there's a a lack of knowledge, a lack of understanding, and some genuine fear of loss.
1: Yeah, it it seems as though they feel, some of the people that I've talked to feel that uh, if they accept that disaster preparedness is everyone's responsibility that means they have to do something they have to pay for it they have to mobilize their staff and they just don't have time for it Mm -hmm. mm-hmm so it was so breaking through that um, the lily defense uh, the (laughs) the scattering uh, and and not really addressing uh, the issues uh, as you bring them up, what what insights can you give me to <laughs> to deal with this, other than just smile?
2: Well, I I do think it's a matter of finding the right champions. The truth is, there are some people who will never, and I I believe this, some people will never actually change their opinion on some things. And some, when they do change their opinion, they will never acknowledge. Um, the change. They will just act as if, yeah, I've always thought this way. Right. Um, but if we want to change it at the societal level, I think those of us who are truly passionate about this and have seen um, what it can do when it is reframed, we need to link with each other. We need to find like-minded. We need to reach out to the people um, who have a different Uh, understanding of this topic, and in some cases, no understanding of the topic. People who have absolutely no skin in the game, they've never, you know, put their name or logo on a brochure or a pamphlet, so they're not defending what they have done in the past. Some of them are the very best at being uh, the the new converts. Every now and again, you'll find someone who used to do the traditional approach, and they have their aha moment, and they become brilliant at um, shifting people because they're able to say, you know, I once thought as you thought. I remember I was in Southern California, and I had a police captain, or maybe no, he was a fire captain. He told me at uh, whatever event I was speaking at that in his whole career, the preparedness talks were some of the hardest basically he was standing in front of people and telling them about terrible and horrible things but he he sat in the card um session and he had his aha moment and the next time i saw him he was i didn't really remember him but he certainly remembered uh me from the change that happened in him and he said that from that point forward when he would speak to a crowd, one of the things he did was apologize to them. He he told people, you know, I used to tell you about the terrible things, you know, what happens when there's a fire. And, and he actually acknowledged that he used to show pictures of fires, right. you know, show really the truly horrible things that will happen from, you know, not using electrical cords pr- appropriately and leaving stuff on the fire or not having a fire extinguisher, you know, all that and he said, one, he apologized to people for doing that, but then he just started speaking not as their fire captain, but as a guy who lived in the neighborhood and what it means to create um, a safe neighborhood with neighbors who can reach out to each other. And he said it was the first time, and, and this is someone who had been doing this basically for a long time, I, I'm guessing more than 20 years of of doing this, he said What a difference it made to have people actually relate to him so differently. And the fact that he wasn't spending his time telling people about terrible things and showing horrible pictures. And, you know, he was a good guy. He never meant to be putting out information that was harmful to people. But that's what's so normal. You think it's really very normal. Mm -hmm
0: yeah there's for me there's the sense of in what you're describing i think it's a little bit off topic from richard but the there there's there's this the whole question about being rescued, being a victim of something, and then that there's you know being, being rescued from something. There's there, pieces of both of those things operate on either side, maybe actually on both sides um, of of this dilemma. You know that I certainly feel like I've run into about having having some of the information make sense to people, and you know not. The, the lily effect, the lily defense, or you know hiding the head in the in the sand sort of response. Um, it, I think it, to a degree it's because people like the, the gentleman that you mentioned for for 20 years or so had had carried the message that fear was going to motivate people, and and I think that message is changing from that group. Of first responders, and I think it's really, really important that that's changing there, but it's also n- not, it's, it's a fairly recent change.
2: Yeah. Well, we certainly have been hammering on this message for quite a while, and in fact, if you go on CARD's website, you will see some really great research about fear. One of my favorite papers is written by um, a wonderful woman named Grace Devlin, and she is an acupuncturist and herbologist and really extraordinarily knowledgeable about all things to do with holistic health. But she wrote a paper about the impact of using fear-based messages in general, but she does bring pointed attention to the disaster message. But it's everything. It's about, you know, whether it's breast cancer or teenage drinking or whatever it is, the framing it in fear um, has some real negative consequences. And people in emergency management do not perceive that they are speaking fear. They think they are speaking reality. When they stand in front of you and talk about the earthquakes and the floods and the fires, they do not think that what they are saying is terrible and horrible. They think they are being honest and telling you about what they know will happen. You know,
1: the realities of life.
2: Yeah, yeah. So, so they perceive that they are being honest and they are being um, realistic. A few of them do acknowledge that they're using fear, but they look at it as it's for the greater good. They believe that they're, you know, giving them the tough love. And the reality is, and there's so much research to support this, The more you put that in there, the more you put those horrible pictures, the more you make it so that it's scary and triggering and overwhelming, the less likely people are to take action and the more likely they are to ignore your next message. Mm. So it keeps building on itself where they put out more of the messages and they put out more of the imagery, and then each time they do a new campaign, it becomes harder and harder. Um, and of course, we have terribly, terribly short memories. I, you know, we're all old enough to remember Y2K. What? <laughs> and Y2K is the is the disaster I point to for this. Y2K was the disaster that um, gave us something that virtually no other disaster really has, and that was a specific date where it was supposed to happen. Um, mm-hmm. And if you remember, 1999 was the year that we ramped up. So we spent a whole year waiting for this moment. On December 31st at 11.59 p.m. on the, you know, 1999, that was going to be the last time that we took a comfortable breath because we had no idea whether planes were going to fall from the sky, whether our cars were going to start up, whether we would be able to access money from our banks. And because there was this universal chant about this, Everyone who was a computer consultant, no matter what low level of consultancy you had, it was your best year because everybody and their brother was concerned about this. Because remember, anything that ran with a computer chip was subject to do the wrong thing. Mm -hmm. And it allowed for a level of scamming of seniors and people with disabilities like no other disaster has ever provided because we had a very specific date. And the more we ramped up the fear the worse the human behavior was. You wind up with people really doing the extreme scam. You wound up with people with a level of anxiety that lasted for years. Um, And it didn't leave us more prepared. People who could afford to buy things bought stuff, and many of them took it back to the store when it was done. We didn't create a culture of preparedness. We created a culture of fear. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's the thing that I believe... Um, we need to acknowledge, and I like to think that we will have more and more people entering into higher positions in places like FEMA and Homeland Security and fire departments where they are willing to say no, absolutely no to the fear, the threat, um, and it will take a lot. And for some agencies, it's going to take, really, um, I sadly, I think there will be more lawsuits. I think there's going to be more loss before some people will let go. Because there's, you know, when you've got all the brochures that have the pictures, when you've got your message about how terrible things will be, um, I think it's hard to let go of the message.
0: Right, right. I think, the, you know, one of the things, at least from my limited experience, is that the first responders are, you know, at least – you know telling us you know helping us to understand that they 're not going to be able to do everything that 's really necessary during a disaster, I mean the disaster I mean pretty much as it 's defined is is that everything is overwhelmed, including them, and that they 're not going to be able to you know get to us and what can we do to sort of take care of ourselves but I do think that it's still there 's at least that echo, if not a real strong you know, murmur of of the the fear that that is behind that message know is is that okay you're going to have to take care of yourselves and then i i I do think that that sense of the rescue is still available in that is that you have to take care of yourselves until we get there yes and and i think we, we we can actually determine ourselves whether anybody else is really needed or not for almost everything i think
2: well and i personally have a really really difficult time with the traditional message because even with um some now being willing to say Yes, we're all going to be overwhelmed and you're going to need to do this. We've spent more than 100 years telling people that police and fire and Red Cross and, you know, response agencies, they will be there. And when you've put out a message so consistently for 100 years, it's going to take more than a few people being willing to say otherwise. And for many people, they look at it as a genuine act of betrayal. That after years and years and years of this message and tax dollars going to pay for certain things with the idea that we're buying our response, we're buying that level of safety in the community, it feels like absolute betrayal for some when suddenly they're told, nope, we're not going to be there for you, nope. It's not going to happen. Yeah, we will not be there.
0: That's right. so true. I mean, I, I definitely get that from people. Um, you know, there's one, there's that sense of the, oh, total reliance that they, yep. that, that, that you know, the, the city, the community, the government will be there. And then that upset, you know, that total upset when the honesty, you know, of the first responders of, you know, we're, we're not going to be able to get to everybody. I mean, Richard uses some of the stats here in Sonoma County that, I mean, anybody that pays attention to the stats at all would have to realized, oh, well there's like a one in fifteen hundred chance you're gonna get to me. So so it's you know, I better be taking care of myself. Hmm.
2: Yes, and the truth is we were never, let me underscore the word, never genuinely able to have the majority of the populace rescued by the first responders in a catastrophic event. Yes. That was never going to happen. But that's what the marketing was. That's what the messaging was. And I know I have gone to dozens and dozens of meetings where well intentioned people who were just repeating the party line would say variations of that, that, you know, X number of minutes until fire um, departments would be there. And I've heard Red Crossers for years say the exact same thing. Oh, sometimes we even beat the fire department to the scene. I'm like, you know what? That may have been in years gone by in some communities, but never the most vulnerable communities. Take any major jurisdiction and look at the poorest communities. They don't have that level of response time. For the fire, even if everything is good, even if it's without a disaster. Right. So we actually never had the level of response capacity that has always been branded into the public. So now having a few random people being willing to say, nope, we're not going to be there, that's not going to do it. It's just not going to do it. And we've got to stop putting all of our money and our resources. And by resources, I don't just mean the people, I don't just mean the dollars. I mean the in-kind donations of media time and all sorts of things that go into keeping that brand in place. We have branded responders as the heroes, and we should be branding regular people as the heroes in their community. Regular people, people who have not taken years of classes and trainings and they're not specially equipped Everyone should feel like, you know, I've got a role to play, and I know how to do it. Everyone. Everyone.
1: And and it's not what I love about disaster repair. Disaster preparedness. The joy of disaster preparedness is that awakening that we are responsible um, that we have something to say in the matter whether it's disaster preparedness or whether it's, it's the water supply, whether it's income inequality whether it's the, uh, the condition of our earth, it, If the more we begin to take responsibility for our lives, the healthier we're going to be
2: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, yeah. and it's why for us at CARD We have put such energy behind reframing all of these planning and readiness pieces to be about the ability to mobilize your assets. And, of course, your people are your greatest asset. So when we took on doing the incident command system, making it about project management and asset mobilization was really the thing that made the difference. Becoming independent took it on, and so now they can organize anything and mobilize their assets to accomplish anything, right? If they had to reach to their clients with an opportunity, if Bill Gates said, you know what, I'd like to give a million dollars to the community and becoming independent is going to be our um, agency for the deployment of it, you know what, BI could step up right now. They would know exactly how to reach out to every single one of their clients, every single person in the BI family. Is now able to be mobilized as an asset. That's a skill set. The fact that they use it for disaster is awesome, but the fact that they could use it for anything is more awesome.
0: Right. And, and they and they are doing that. They they are using it for right. other things besides within their organization.
2: Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we at Card we use like the incident command system. It's how we do our staff meetings, right? If you had if you came to our office. The planning meeting for your meeting would include someone saying, I'll handle the logistics, meaning they will get, you know, the stuff, whether it's the chairs set up, getting coffee, food, whatever. Someone else is going to say, okay, I got the planning, which means they would be pulling out the agenda, creating the timeline, the action items, those sorts of things. Someone would say I'm the incident commander, meaning they were actually leading the meeting and being the, you know, top line of authority for it. Someone else is going to be doing the the basics of finance and admin. That means we're going to make sure every bill is paid, everything is well documented, and when the meeting is over, whatever paperwork that went with it gets filed. That's just using the incident command system as a project management tool. But mm-hmm. by the time you have used it, to run five or six meetings, a few fundraisers, you know, written a grant or two, I promise you, by the time you have to use it for an emergency situation, it's normalized, it's socialized, it's actually not a mental breakdown for you.
0: Well, that's great. I mean, the normalized, that's a great, you know, that's that's a great phrase right there because it's not – normalized for most people, not just the incident command system, but just thinking in those ways, you know, that, mm-hmm. that, that there's a group around you and that group can be utilized to better deal with whatever it is that's happening, either, you know, pre-event or during an event of some kind. It doesn't have to be a or disaster after or after. I mean, that you can utilize the group instead of being the individual silos that we sort of migrate ourselves to during those times.
2: And it really helps people to see that they've got skills to bring to the table. When we do the incident command system just as simple project management, you know, there's always someone who is better at doing things like um, public outreach, right? There are some people who are just comfortable standing up in front of the room, talking to people. So like in an emergency, that might be the person who's doing the briefing. But in a community meeting, that might be the person who's, you know, doing the welcome and sort of framing the day. That's a great skill set to know whether or not you have it. Other people, it is a fabulous thing that they realize, you know what, I should not be the front person, but I'm excellent at the paperwork and details and making sure that we have done things, you know, according to our checklist and, you know, I kept all the papers. If that's your skill set, awesome. It is great to know that now. Mm-hmm, hmm and be able to contribute it in any environment you're in.
1: Right, right. S- speaking of any environment you're in and, and being more conscious of, of your environment, um, you think a lot about uh, other populations, Spanish speakers, mm-hmm. people with disabilities. Do you want to uh, give us any insights about that?
2: Yeah, we spent so much time tailoring to the specific needs of different groups that we came to realize that virtually every defined group had such remarkably different um, needs and considerations and Concerns. Um, So, for example, we have—you know—my office is in downtown Oakland, but we serve the entire East Bay, and of course, through the magic of internet and travel, we've we've served people across the country and internationally. But but we found, wow, the needs are just so different. So, uh, one example is um, Spanish speakers. Right? We have a very large Spanish-speaking population. And when we started to look at, okay, what does preparedness look like for them? Of course, if you go the traditional approach, it's all the same information that was created for English-speaking uh, middle-income people.
1: Just translated and, into Spanish.
2: Yeah. yeah, and that's all it was. Everything, everything. And, in fact, there was a lot of emphasis and, you know, muscle put behind making it an exact translation so that it was a certified exact translation so that the English audience English speaking audience got the same as the Spanish speaking audience same as the Chinese speaking audience and let's remember that that preparedness information didn't work well on the English speaking audience it's not like <laughs> yes. wow those pamphlets and brochures from classes got all of the middle middle income English speaking people prepared right. it didn't work on that community and then we put it into all of those different languages. The reality is, if you're a Spanish speaker here, even if it's a you know, a good second language for you, it's going to be different under crisis. When you're anxious, when you have that level of adrenaline, your ability to communicate in a second language plummets. So if you're a Spanish speaker here, you should actually have very different things. You should have... A dual language phrase book as part of your emergency supplies. You should know where your language is going to be spoken, whether it's at a church or a community center. You should know all of the broadcast media that's going to put information out in your language. You should know that under stress your ability to process that second language is going to be really hard. So even just understanding the information that's coming at you and your ability to speak all will change. That information and much more was never on the English language brochure. So that information just never makes it to our different um, language populations. But those things are some of the most important things for people to realize. It's even in the simple choices. If you're a Spanish speaker here, you should choose people as your emergency contacts who speak English better than you because we know all of the initial information is going to go out in English only, Mm -hmm. right? It's going to take a while for the translation machines and agencies to be able to put information out. So everything is actually quite different. Mm -hmm. But that's not what we do. What we do is we try to standardize, standardize, standardize. And, you know, it didn't work in the target population that we knew how to reach. Why in the world would it serve people with such different needs. I could say the same thing about the LGBT community. You know, they're just different things. If you're part of the LGBT community, you should actually plan differently. You should have more documentation because even in places where same-sex marriage is legal, it's going to take a while. This is just going on human history. It's going to take a while before there's that genuine level of equality and you're not going to have to do extra proof, and try extra hard. And then depending on what community you're in, you may still face discrimination. So having that level of documentation about your relationship is incredibly important. Knowing who to call, having pre-programmed in your phone um, the agencies that will help you to be able to negotiate these things. Those are the types of things that just aren't on preparedness to-do lists It needs to be tailored for the specific needs of that community,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and uh, do you think that there are um, organizations within, say, like the Spanish community, say, in your to use your area as an example, and that there are, there are organizations that are working on, <clears throat> excuse me, on getting that information, that the, the appropriate information out to their communities at this stage?
2: Well, we are working with different agencies to start building that, but the truth is, the most normal thing in the advocacy world is. If you're going to jump on an issue, then you tend to be an advocate with, like, the very big names. So if you look at the last several major disasters, some groups representing Spanish-speaking um, community members, one of the first things they do is they will get in a big discussion with FEMA or they'll get in a big discussion with Red Cross. Somebody will issue a press release There will be a new level of recommitment to working with that community, and, you know, media releases, da-da-da-da-da, they'll form a committee, people will start working together, and before you know it, there will be a new brochure, a new pamphlet that comes out, which doesn't have the things that I mentioned earlier. Mm -hmm. Why? Because think about what it means. You've now brought, whether it's, you know, Red Cross, FEMA, whichever the traditional group is, to a group group. That did not have preparedness, right? They did not have culturally appropriate material. And the traditional group didn't put out culturally appropriate material. So you put these two groups in a room together, what you will get is someone pulling out the brochure and the people representing the Spanish language community will be able to look at that brochure and point out the things that are absolutely egregious. You know, it's like we would never use the sort of words. Um, The people should look more as if they speak Spanish. You know, they'll pick out those sorts of obvious things. So, you know, the color scheme will change and blah, blah, blah. And then, of course, the traditional government agency is like, oh, great. Uh," So then you wind up with a new brochure that has both logos but still didn't hit all of those things because, one, the traditional agency never knew the important things for the Spanish-speaking community, and the representatives from the Spanish-speaking community never knew the preparedness piece. It's not like they knew how to prepare their community and they just weren't doing it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you wind up with these new documents that have new partnership logos on it that still did not actually address the issue.
0: Okay. Yeah, it's sad, cool.
2: but you can see how it would happen, right? Oh, yes, yes. Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So, so let's let's get more positive. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> well, um, what can businesses do to make their employees more prepared, and why should they do it?
2: Oh my goodness, there are so many um, little things. Um, I think every business, whether they've articulated it or not. They have a commitment to their own health, wellness, resilience, and sustainability. So just for the purpose of, hey, we're a business that wants to stay in business, that's one good reason. But certainly you want the buy-in of your employees and your customers, right? You want your customers to feel safe. Right. And when something happens, that you should step up and do the right thing. And, you know, if you can make a difference in your community, bravo to you. So there's just all kinds of good reasons, and none of them have to do with the disaster piece, right? Mm-hmm. But some of them do. Some of them it's just, okay, proper risk management. You, you want to do the right thing. You want to be able to pass all those tests of, you know, would a reasonable person have said that you took appropriate action to keep people safe? You want to be able to say yes, So, I mean, there are a couple dozen great reasons to do it, but some of the easiest things, and we mentioned a couple of them, but it's like, okay, choose your swag. You know, if you're going to put your name and logo on something, put your name and logo on stuff that actually empowers people and leaves them safer and leaves them better able to step up and be great. Um, And that's everything from the whistles, the flashlights, the little multi-tools you can put in your wallet. So even just a simple marketing choice. And remember, they're already spending money on these things. They're just not spending money on the things that leave you safer, right. right? They certainly had enough money to give you a mug and a mouse pad and a foam finger and a, you know, a baseball cap. I think we could get some whistles and flashlights and multi-tools and Mylar blankets and all sorts of things. So there's just that level. There's the including a little bit, just a happy little bit of preparedness in staff meetings and in how you do your business. So, for example, one of my favorite things, For all businesses is the concept of what we call it at CARD is wayfinding so when you're directing people when you're giving them directions either inside your facility or in the neighborhood where you are point out where they need to go using safety indicators as part of the directional information so if someone says oh where is the blah 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 restaurant if I own a store, the way I would give directions is, okay, well, you're going to walk out the door, you're going to turn left. And as soon as you pass the um, fire hydrant, you know that it'll be the next turn. And that way they know where the fire hydrant is. If it's, if you're in a big building, you might say, if someone asks you, where's the restroom, you might say, okay, you're going to go down the hall to your right. As soon as you pass the emergency stairs, it'll be the next um, doorway. Okay, now they know exactly where the emergency stairs are because when you're negotiating a hallway that way, your eyes have now been trained to look for those emergency stairs. So if you help people to learn about safety using wayfinding, you will get a few great results. Number one, everyone in your company will know where all the stuff is, right, because they were given that as part of how they give directions. So everyone on your team will know where your you know, emergency exit and your first aid kit and all that sort of stuff is. But two, it means that a person can be a visitor in your office and they will be safe too without having to pull people aside and try to get them to do it. Um, Doing all of the paper stuff that we talked about, the nudge notices and potty posters and safety signage, so that your physical facility, your office space, whatever your retail space, that it speaks safety to whomever is there. Visitors, strangers, doesn't matter. Everyone should know how to respond appropriately, which directions to go, all of those things. So there's that. There's the what do you fund in the community, right? Businesses give money to community projects all the time. What if they, one, funded groups like CARD to make sure that safety was alive and well and empowered in their community? or fund the agencies they're already funding to take a preparedness class, give a preparedness class, have it woven into their system. I mean, there are so many ways. Um, Right now, anyone listening, if they went to Card Can Help on Facebook, if we had a bunch of people liking and sharing this, we would be able to get this information out to thousands of people. Um, I've got a suggestion for you. Mm-hmm.
1: All right. mm-hmm.
2: I mean, we should be voting with our wallets.
1: Yeah, it seems as though that uh, an empl- employer would do- take such actions that... They would let their customers, their staff, and their community know that they care, <laughs> that they they have compassion. And, Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. Very good.
0: Yeah, I think that's one of the things that it, it goes to that, that that your work goes to address. I think is is that there 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 is a benefit for a business, an agency, an individual to be able to respond to the fact that yes. I was prepared. I was able to help because of the work that I had done to prepare, because of the information that I had brought into my workplace or into my home or whatever, yes, I, I was able to help out when I needed to, when it, when it was needed. I mean, that's just such a great feeling, I think, as an individual, and, and I look to to use becoming independent as an example, is the work that they were able to do, what they were able to supply to their the service that they could supply to their clients. You know, mm-hmm. as a person Standing on the outside, I mean, I have to just—I mean, I just have to acknowledge becoming independent as as a wonderful organization because of what they were able to do for their clients. And I think any business, any organization, any agency would want to be able to have that sort of of um, ability to respond like that um, after something happening.
2: Well, and we have several stories. I mean, becoming independent has. A great story of, uh, you know, they took on learning the incident command system, and one of their employees, the next time my fabulous colleague, Lars Eric, was up doing a training, she shared the story of how um, someone in her family had passed away, and she was tasked with the responsibility of running the estate sale. And when she got this, you know, sort of big deal thing to do, She took on, okay, if I've got to run the cell, I'm going to run it using the incident command system. And what she said was, one, it made everything about that rather trying experience easier to manage, but also the safety officer piece of it was incredibly important because, yes, people will come to your state cell and try to walk off with stuff. So the fact that they had already thought that through and that was part of it, Was great. The same is true for the Alameda County Community Food Bank. Every person at the Alameda County Community Food Bank, when they're issued their ID badge, gets cards, incident command, wallet card inside the badge holder. Mm -hmm. And one of their workers was on BART, and her name is Catherine, and a woman uh, passed out. Turns out the woman was pregnant, she hit the ground, she was injured. Catherine busted out her incident command wallet card, reviewed it, took over the um, BART car, got the woman what she needed. As she came to, it turned out that she spoke Spanish. She got someone in the car who could speak Spanish and English. They sent the message to the next station that they were coming in loaded with someone who was going to need medical assistance, you know, blah, 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 blah. And she entirely handled the situation, handed her off to the Um, EMS workers put the wallet card back in her name badge and went on about her business. (laughs) And this is not a person who is a trained emergency responder person. This is someone who is a, you know, an everyday lovely worker for the wonderful Alameda County Community Food Bank who, because the food bank has their employees have this level of readiness and resilience, she was able to make a difference for a perfect stranger just during her commute
1: yeah that's great
0: that's just
1: great so i have a couple more questions for you one is how can people help card but before you answer that could you um tell me about the rockefeller 100 resilient cities that you're doing Uh,
2: yes um the rockefeller foundation is sponsoring this thing called the 100 resilient cities competition and The city of Oakland, uh, San Francisco, and uh, the city of Berkeley, in my area, they were all chosen, which makes us one of the only places where um, resilient cities are actually clustered together. So this is an enormous opportunity. Um, The Rockefeller Foundation will ultimately pick 100 cities, And what they're funding is something called a resilience officer and technical assistance and support. So in theory, we're going to be trying to make um, the cities more resilient. Hmm. But the reality is, is that so much of the framework is still so rooted in the past, whenever you talk about disaster anything, that I'm really going to work toward Let's see if we can make this 100 Resilient Cities initiative be a great opportunity, great opportunity for leverage and all of that. I see it as when you ask what businesses can do, well, businesses can help make sure that your their city is able to pull down resources. The truth is there are hundreds of millions of dollars that periodically get um, made available for cities for preparedness, response, recovery work. It doesn't, you know, no one just comes knocking on your city's door saying, hey, would you like a few million dollars to do something good? It usually requires somebody to be pushy about it and to, you know, write the RFP and to ask for grant money and to drag it to their city. So if businesses could align behind this idea that they can help their's, their city prepare to prosper, not prepare for horrible, but prepare to prosper, we would be better able to pull money toward our city. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a lot of money that is spent in disaster-related conversations. Businesses can absolutely help drag that money, and a united business community does many things. If you look back to the Northridge quake, Northridge actually got their bridges and overpasses and all of that fixed really quickly, as opposed to in the Bay Area where it took us, what, two decades to get the Bay Bridge completed. And the reality is is that some business communities are just better organized and better able to put that kind of political pressure where it is needed, get the social pressure going, and that's just the truth of the matter. And mm-hmm. it matters. It matters tremendously as to whether your local business community is ready to advocate and ready to put their kind of weight behind something and to make sure that they're advocating for the right thing.
1: Right, right. How can people help, Card? Yeah,
0: how can we? Yeah,
1: exactly.
2: <laughs> um, well, I, I think what you guys are doing is really remarkable and fabulous. You're using your radio station to help promote this message, and really if we could clone other media representatives to do the same, that would be incredible because the truth is people need to hear a message not once, not twice, but many times yes. before they even begin to consider it something that is actionable. And after 100 years of hearing the other message consistently by lots of players, this message really needs that level of amplification. So certainly media representatives writing about us, featuring us, you know, that sort of thing would be helpful. Donations. I mean, donations would be at the top of my list of what could make the biggest difference. Uh, We have to struggle to find every dollar because the truth is most people think that You know, the fear-based messaging is going to work, that you can put out a brochure and a pamphlet and it's going to make a difference. It doesn't. So straight-up funding matters. In-kind donations really matter. Um, And it's from large things to tiny things. Um, You know, people who've got uh, safety materials that we can give out, the whistles, the flashlights, the, the little things. I'm happy if some business wants to put their name and logo on Whistles, you know, if if a company said, you know what, I want to help with your whistle campaign, if they put the safety code, the one is yes, two is no, three is help on the whistle, I'm happy to give out whistles that would have their logo on it. I'm I'm an equal opportunity preparer. I think we need <laughs> more businesses doing things like that. But also, there are um, just other in kind donations that would make all the difference. We need our computer system, for example, is. Re- ridiculously old. So we're looking for um, an eight-station Apple um, computer system. Um, We need a new phone system. I mean, we have many needs, and any agency, any business, any generous donor could do that. Anyone who's got connections to um, basically celebrities, people who can pull in um, attention, we can give them a way of making it making this a really beautiful, positive conversation. Not a disaster conversation, but a sloppy love fest of (laughs) communities that know how to care for each other and mobilize their assets. Mm -hmm. Um, If they're local, uh, we have in-house volunteering that they could do. If they're not local but care, there are online volunteering things they can do if they've got a skill set they wish to contribute, whether it's editing or um, web design. I mean, we have so many different ways and different communities that we would like to serve. Um, We would certainly uh, be able to support that. And I'd remind everyone that because we do such hyper-targeting of specific communities, you can pick the type of community that you really want your financial support or your in-kind support to help. So if you're passionate about faith agencies becoming more prepared, awesome. You can fund an initiative specifically for faith agencies in general or a particular faith community. You could do the same for the LGBT community or Spanish speakers or whatever. We can hyper-target in a way that none of the traditional agencies um, can do. And those are some of the most missing things is that level of hyper-targeting.
0: Mm-hmm. And, and you, obviously, Anna-Marie, you're a uh, 501c3, so people make donations. Then it works for it works to their advantage on a tax basis.
2: Absolutely, we are a 501c3, so um, tax deductible contributions um, are absolutely what we can offer. Mm-hmm. And then we have some other uh, ways that people can help. For example, a wonderful woman. She is a uh, um, a coach and a consultant. With uh, dog watch navigation, her name is Carol Hallberg. She just um, wrote a booklet all about resilient boards. I think it's rich board, poor board, and it's now available on Amazon. So if you go on Amazon, you could get it as a downloadable or as a, a Kindle ebook. And uh, profits from the book will go to Card. Um, sometime mm-hmm. next week, anyone who has a car that they wish to junk and donate um there's a company that will actually they handle all the work and card would get a donation for every car that is donated that's good um there are all kinds of ways that people who would like to transform preparedness can partner with us and you know there's there's just opportunity aplenty and it doesn't matter whether you're a large agency or small it, it really makes a difference. Ditto for sports teams. I mean, I think of how many sports teams are always in trouble with some community or other. You know what? There's a way that you can make every community safer, including the ones that maybe you've stepped in it with. And we can help with that. We can make it so that whatever your, your heart says is the community you want to support, we can help you to do that.
0: That's great. So uh, just to get some details back for people, too, is, is uh, your website address, uh, cardcanhelp.org. Um, any other particular information like that that you want people to have before we cut out here pretty soon?
2: We are always online um, as Card Can Help C-A-R-D-C-A-N-H-E-L-P. So that's on Twitter, on Facebook, on LinkedIn, you name it, that's where we are. And my email address is uh, my initials, AMJ, for Anna Marie Jones, so amj at cardcanhelp.org. And if you let me know that you heard me on uh, the Joy of Preparedness Radio, that would be
0: super helpful. And I, and I do have to say, I've, I, I have heard, so you shouldn't listen to this part, Anna-Marie, I have heard Anna-Marie talk, and it's pretty spectacular. So if you have the opportunity to um, have Anna-Marie come and talk to your organization or group or, you know, just two or three of you, you will have a really good time, and you will learn a lot of really good information.
2: Thank
1: you. Yeah, she is the uh, so brilliant. I yeah, just yeah. I love you, my dear. <laughs>
2: thank yeah. you.
0: Yeah, you thanks are- so much, Anne Marie, for coming and sharing everything uh, that you have today. It's, it's it's wonderful the work that you do. Yeah.
2: Thank you, and thank you both. You guys have been such incredible champions for card and for me and for humanity to embrace this conversation differently. If I could clone you, we could take over the world. (laughs) Will (laughs) do. (laughs) Okay.
0: Thanks, Anna-Marie. We'll talk to you again. Thank you
2: so much. Bye-bye.
0: So, Richard.
1: Yes. It's time. We've, it's time. Hi-ho. It's Hi-ho. Time. <laughs> <laughs> all right.
0: Good to see you. Yes. This is wonderful. And we'll see you all um, on the first Sunday in May. Hey,
1: yes. Thank you.
0: Bye-bye. Bye.